Welcome back to Exponential Wisdom. I'm Peter Diamandis. I'm here with my dear friend and coach, Dan Sullivan. And on this podcast, I think we're going to dive into a subject of interest to anybody who's got young kids, nieces, nephews, grandkids, and that is the whole subject of how much technology should they be playing with? How much tablet time should they get? And should you implant that small chip into their brain or not? <laughs> Dan, <laughs> let's have this conversation. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I don't have children younger than about 35 years old. You know, like I pick them up. I've got thousands of them, but I let them develop under other people's supervision for the first 35 years. So I, I want to make sure they're going to be check writers before I'm, I'm really interested <laughs> in them. But if I reflect on a lot of the side conversations that we have in Coach, this particular topic, one, children in general, but just living in a technological age, which is very different from anything that our clients experience themselves, is this a good thing, the amount of time that they're spending on tablets? Is it a bad thing? Is there something gained from it? Is there something lost from it? So this is a full range of things, and nobody has a real handle on it. That's the biggest thing I notice. I mean, good parents are good parents with technology. They draw boundaries, they draw lines, they have rules, and they make sure there's other dimensions to children's life. So this is a fascinating topic to me. Yeah, well, let me give some context for our listeners, just for comparative. I don't have check writers yet. I've got check consumers on my kids, but uh, <laughs> my two boys just turned six. They're fraternal twins, and they probably prioritize tablets number one in front of oxygen and food, and then comes Legos and other things and food and everything else down the list. And it is a constant debate about how much tablet time they should get. And so I think about this a lot. And I think about this in comparison to other things and the world that they're living into. And I agree with you, part of the conversation is around boundary conditions. When a kid wants something so much that they would spend the entire day doing that and nothing else, never going outside, obviously that's got an addictive behavior and that's not good for you. So we do, in fact, draw very strict definitions around tablet time about when and where they can have it. But I know families that have policies of zero technology, zero tablet time. And, you know, I respect their position. But when I think about the positive sides, I am seeing my boys explore. I mean, the thing that I love most about what they're doing with their tablets are, you know, YouTube for kids. There is a walled garden with YouTube for kids, which it's age appropriate YouTube content. And then their ability to use the, they're just beginning to read now, they're just beginning to write now, but there's a audio function where you can click on the microphone and ask any question and get videos that will answer that. So I'm finding them having a lot of self-driven exploration out there with the technology. That's pretty incredible. One of the questions that I think comes up, because this is a long-range uh, investment on your part, how do you picture them? I mean, there are six now, but if I bring up the year 25, they're 25 years old. How are you comparing what you're seeing them, how they're developing right now with a picture you would have in your mind when they're 25? Well, they're 25 in the year 2036, 
which is pretty extraordinary, right? To put it in context, and that's the challenge because most of us want to bring up our kids with the right morals, ethics, principles, use of time, and so forth that we grew up with. But the fact of the matter is our kids today are growing up in a very different world. It's a world that's going to be, they're going to be surrounded by a blanket of artificial intelligence. They're going to have everything around them being smart and autonomous. And as I teach my A360 members, for me, the most important three things for my children are that they find their passion, that they are insanely curious and that they have grit, in other words, that they not give up. Mm -hmm. Those three things are fundamental to a world where they can know anything they want and see anything they want and interface with anything they want. So I don't agree with the notion of not growing up with any technology mm -hmm. because I think that's just antiquated and they need to be technologically literate. What I'm finding fascinating is that they can follow their passion. You know, the kids are in their mm -hmm. paleontologist phase right now and you go and ask my kids about anything about dinosaurs and they have read about, learned about, watched about anything. So that self-driven exploration allows them to explore their passions. Let me ask you a question, and this is kind of a past reference one. It's 1967, Peter Diamandis is six years old, and you have a tablet. How would you have developed differently if you had had that capability when you were six years old? Interesting. So back then, I was just getting into my space phase, and I would be very limited in the amount of stuff I could get. It was just the few things I would clip out of the newspaper, or if I could get my mom to take me to the library, it was whatever books happened to be there. And so I think it's the speed of exploration. Now, there's something to be said about the struggle, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of extraordinarily successful people who got there because they struggled like a great vineyard, mm -hmm. says the roots have to struggle to get down into the aquifer. So I think about that. I think about for my kids, and this is the challenge, right? Because if we truly believe the rate of exponential growth, my six-year-old, by the time they're 25, are going to be living in a world of brain-computer interface. Ray Kurzweil talks about the notion that we're going to be interfacing the human cortex with the cloud by the early to mid-2030s. And so the question isn't, do you buy your kids a car or do you get them a cell phone? It's, do you plug their brain into the cloud? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are some fascinating elements right now that I think we're going to have to deal with. I don't feel comfortable. So let me give you an example here. This past weekend, my kids are very much into Pokemon, and I sort of made the mistake of turning them on to Pokemon Go, where I downloaded Pokemon Go into both of their tablets, and they're Pokemon crazy, and we went on a Pokemon Go adventure. You've got your smartphone or your tablet, and you're walking around, and you're finding little Pokemon that are augmented reality. They're superimposed on the mm -hmm. image taken by your camera on your cell phone or tablet, and you are able to capture them. Anyway, long story short, we did that for an hour, and that's all they wanted to do. And so the issue of the young addictive personality, I think that there needs to be I think the balance, the mental cognitive balance has to develop as they get later in life where they can say, okay, I'm going to partition that for a period of time. Otherwise, it becomes the parent's responsibility to do that. One example I have, which is very fresh in my mind, is Stephen Poulter, who you know very well, 
Stephen is a top IVF doctor, and he's got three kids, but the youngest one is the YouTube master, and he's got a rule. His name's Sam, and he says, here's the deal. Anything you want to learn, you get five YouTube videos of that, and you put the knowledge together, and he says, at the end of five YouTube videos, you probably know it is better than all but the greatest expert on the planet, he says. It gives you a total feeling, and he teaches himself things. He teaches himself practically. How old is Sam? Eight years old. But he lines them up. He gets one YouTube, and then he looks for another. He doesn't start looking at the first one until he's got five of them. And then he goes in, and he compares them, and sees if there's contradictions and everything else. But it's really, really interesting how his mind has created this university for himself. And I did it with the Encyclopedia Britannica when I was 11 years old with a notebook. And I just went randomly through the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is kind of like an early internet. It's like a print-based internet. Sure. And I have a feeling that a lot of my brain formation came out of about seven years of just allowing the encyclopedia to be created as a separate learning universe. I grew up in very, very strict Roman Catholic schools, same school for 12 years. And my mother had told me when I was six years old that reading was more important than going to school. And she had also told me that my teachers were only teaching me what they had been taught, that they hadn't actually taught themselves I don't think my mother liked school either. <laughs> so she gave me this little buffer, uh, this sort of protective immunity. And I noticed by the time I was 18 years old, when it came to general knowledge and just what was going on in the world, I had a much greater feel for things than any of my classmates. And that's just an early example. What I'm trying to get across here is your reference to your two boys being self-directing. And my feeling is if they learn how to be self-directing, then they've got about half of life left. Yeah, interesting. You know, regardless of the means that they're using to do that, they've got a basic organizing principle inside their brains called self-directing, which I think is a phenomenal skill. You have had this conversation before where every generation sees the new technology of their kids as potentially dangerous. We've talked about even the written language having been seen as problematic to the ability of people to memorize stories. And I remember when I was growing up, the big issue was I was a TV addict. Mm -hmm. I would come home from school. I remember I had this comfortable chair. I'd sit down at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I would watch this series of shows like Gilligan Island and F Troop and I Dream of Jeannie, and I'm dating myself in all of these. And I'd have every 30 minutes, I'd have the show I'd watch until it was time for dinner. Mm -hmm. And then I'd rattle off my homework real quick. And I would repeat that. And my dad one day said, you know, it's just too much. You get an hour a day. Here's a schedule. Write out what mm -hmm. you want. And, and that's it. And so I can't imagine it's very different other than the hour of YouTube for kids is going to probably be much more educational than, <laughs> than I Dream of Genie and Gilligan's Island. Well, the other thing is that there's no prediction, like they're six years old, so let's say they have a first grade teacher who's predicting what life is going to be like when they're 18. That teacher has no basis for making any kind of prediction what life is going to be like. When I was six years old, my teacher had an 80% chance of predicting what life was going to be like. 
So that's the thing that I think has disappeared in the wake of the technological revolution is the ability for any person in authority to make a prediction on what a child's life is going to be like a decade down the road. They lose a lot of power when they lose their sense of prediction. So the big thing that I would want to augment in addition to the tablet learning is other kinds of learning where they're using their full body, they're using their senses. And I put some notes together just with reference to this topic. I think playing and cooperating with others, being in nature without the tablet, so that there's a full nervous system development that children have. The other thing, I don't know how you feel about this, Peter, but I developed an ability incredibly early, like certainly younger than 10, of conversing with adults about their world. Do you do that with them? I mean, do they ask you questions? Absolutely. But what I do, and in fact, that is probably the most important thing, is the conversations that we have. I had an interesting conversation. We had an hour-long drive coming back from an event yesterday. We had a long conversation in the car about what's important in life, you know, and I mean, really some heady stuff, like what are the most important things in life? It was great. And I could hear my kids parroting back, you know, family's important. Health is important. Being a good person is important. Preserving nature is important. You know, those sorts of things. But I think those conversations are key. And of course, school is an important part of the non-tech socialization skills that are important. I'll tell you another thing which has been incredible besides the tablet has been the whole Lego revolution. And most people don't know. I mean, I happen to know the CEO of Lego, and it's incredible what they have done in building this gigantic private company that takes about a dollar's worth of plastic and sells it for 80 bucks, <laughs> which is insane. And the partnerships they've created across all movies, across all platforms. But I'll tell you, it has taught my kids patience and grit to get to the completion of this very complex 1,500-piece Lego project that's taken them three or four days, following instructions. And so there's great gameplay in that regard. And my next goal with them is to get them to program. You know, there's programmable Legos. And the whole, this is what Dean Kamen does with FIRST Robotics, his FIRST Robotics competition. And FIRST is an acronym that stands for for inspiration and recognition and I think science and technology. And from first grade on, they have these Lego competitions and these mm-hmm. giant bags of parts and build robots that have to compete in various things. And so all of those elements of self-motivated creative energy to solve problems and learn what you want to learn, it just I think that the exponential growth of technology is just going to allow us to learn much more, much faster, and have a bigger impact on the world that we want earlier in life. I'm just sketching out one of my next quarterly books. So I've got one that's coming out in September. I have one in December, and then I'm looking at March. And I came up with a title, and I've just been testing it around the office since how to make your mind increasingly bigger than your brain. That's the title. And I'm making a distinction between your brain, which is kind of like your working problem-solving mechanism, and your mind. And the mind is everything that you connect with. It's your ability to interact with the brains of other human beings. So 
what I'm seeing is that probably your twins, they won the lottery in many ways. They're healthy. They're very, very healthy. They're living in a probably a very, very resource-rich community in Santa Monica. And they've got you as a guide, you know. I mean, they've got you as a conversational partner through all this. And if they develop really, really good values and they have an ability to cooperate and they have an ability to, as I say, show up on time, do what they say, finish what they start, and say please and thank you, they'll probably go a long way. So you're going to have a huge division in society between your twins and a lot of other kids who aren't going to get this type of early protection, early type of encouragement and direction. And that is a real issue because I can see kids just escaping into their tablets because Outside their tablet, life is just horrible. Yeah, And that's where I think of the problem of addiction. There's too much stimulation that's in the world outside of tablets for your boys to be, really become addicted to it. I think they may be addicted to problem solving and learning, which is not a bad thing in itself. A couple of thoughts that you just sparked. First of all, one thing that I appreciate is while I'm the science geek their mom, my wife, is very much the artist and is helping them understand and explore the physical world and the visual world and all of those things. So there's a, mm. there's a very good balance there. But I have a question for you. A lot of amazing people, I read biographies, you've turned me on to biographies and you've read a tremendous number of biographies, that a lot of the most successful people in the world had a tremendous struggle in their childhood right? Whether it's Einstein or Hamilton or Ben Franklin or a lot of people grew up in a period of time where they had a hard time. Parents divorcing, parents dying, being on their own, mm -hmm. having to survive. So I ask myself the question, I don't wish hardship on my kids at all, but am I disadvantaging them by not having them struggle, right? Well, my feeling is that you could ace it as far as you're concerned in doing the best for your kids, but they're individuals and they're experiencing life in a totally individual way. My sense is that the obstacles that I grew up with in the 1940s and 50s were a lot of physical obstacles. I think the obstacles of the 21st century are psychological obstacles. What I mean by that is... I still have kind of a 1950s patriotism and nationalism. It was really imbued with me. I was surrounded by World War II veterans just back from the war when I was a kid, and these were heroes. There was no ambiguity, which was the right side and everything else. I think that the issues that children, teenagers, young people in their 20s are experiencing today are more ambiguity obstacles. How do you know what to count on? How do you know what's true? I didn't have that problem when I was growing up. I knew what was true. There was a straight line and there was no issue. For example, I was drafted in 1965, right at the beginning of the Vietnam War, and it never would have occurred to me that I would have any issue about going off and being a soldier. Wow. I think things have gotten very, very complicated. There aren't blacks and whites. So my feeling is that they have more of the obstacles of ambiguity than they do actual physical opposition. Fascinating, though. I do remember one story of Richard Branson's mom sort of like 
dropping him off in the forest a mile from his house and having him at some young age find his way home. Four? No, he was like four. <laughs> it's like, so I like, you know, it's, I think yeah. about this, you know, what kind of, should I be creating these challenges that my kids have to like, you know, sweat it out? Because if it's too coddled to life, man, it's not necessarily a good thing. Well, why don't you bring up the topic with them and say, what would be a real challenge for you? Something that in your mind you would find really difficult and that if you committed yourself to doing it, it would require a lot of learning on your part. It might require some real changes and everything else. What would be a project for you to do that? And would you be willing to share that with me? I will ask them. My fear is they'll come back and say, you know, reaching level 20 for their Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, well, don't dismiss that. You know, if you get the right to ask the question, you also get a right to get the answer, you know. But it's a conversation, you know. I think that the key, and I'm an addict to conversation, I think that anything that you're open to talking to them with is a permission on their part to talk about anything and to investigate anything else. I think they get an enormous number of cues from yourself. What's the biggest thing that you can teach your children saying just how the parents relate to each other? I said, that's probably the biggest lesson there. That's the one they're observing all the time. It's an issue, but kids pick up on adult behavior and use it as anchors or as modeling. So modeling, I have yeah. a sense that when your two boys are... 50 or 60, and they have 10-year-olds are saying, geez, this new stuff, this being able to transport to Europe in five seconds, you know, I just don't think this is good for them, you know, or Mars. <laughs> That'll take some rearranging of the laws of physics to do it on Mars. I just think that the basic elements are, do they have really great relationships that they can really trust? Do they have really great conversations with the people that they trust? And are they asked continually to think about their thinking, how they're thinking about things? I think if those three things are true, they're going to be great. Agreed. And just to sort of leave our conversation with a little bit of spice, whether or not a kid should use a tablet for an hour a day or 10 minutes a day or two hours a day is great, interesting. The real technological issues we're going to face within the next 10, 20 years is, do I use CRISPR-Cas9 to increase my child's intelligence? Do I allow this brain chip mm -hmm. to be inserted in my child? I mean, these are going to be far more invasive differentiators, even different from, do I have a designer baby where I've pre-selected which genes for eye color, height, intelligence, muscularities, coordination, the child has, that's going to be an interesting conversation, and, and we can talk more about that on a future podcast. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole question is, do parents have the right to do any of those things? Yeah. You're almost treating it like property, and the question is, do you have the right to do that? But one I would say is that your twins have the opportunity, based on all of our previous discussions about longevity, that they're just going to live massively longer. Yeah. One of the things that we did, and, any, and I'll just repeat this to anybody listening to this podcast, is we stored our children's placentas. One of the company's cellularity that I've co-founded with Bob Hurry is the largest placental stem cell banking facility in the world. People talk about 
storing cord blood. And that's great, you should definitely do that, but the placenta is the 3D printer that manufactures the baby and where it has a much richer supply of a much larger variant of stem cells. And those stem cells that we've stored for our boys is the original software code that will be able to be returned to them later in life and to extend their life a significant amount. So if not regrowing a heart, liver, lung, kidney, and so forth. So mm-hmm. amazing new world that's almost unimaginable coming their way and, and our way. We're going to all probably live to see this stuff. Yeah. What you do tonight when you get home or the next time you see them, I know you're going on a trip, that probably has as much impact as anything. I'm looking forward to, okay, kids, what is something that would be a really huge challenge that if you did it, you'd be so proud of yourself. And let's make a list of those things and then actually knock one off every week. That sounds like a great, fun conversation and confidence building. Yeah, because they have to test the limits of where they are and they'll tell you about them. So I think the one thing that I feel strongly is that ever since I've met you, you've had an overriding commitment to this issue because I met you about two months after the boys were born. And this has been foremost in your thinking ever since I've known you, ever since I've talked to you. So I know just that intensity of commitment is going to be very, very valuable for the whole project. Yeah, well, it's uh, thank you, pal. It's uh, in my free time that I take, and I take a variation from what you've... I book my free time every morning and every afternoon so that when I'm not traveling, I'm there to spend the morning with the boys, walk them to school, pick them up from school, and that's my time with them. And it's my priority, and it's a joy, and it is a fun adventure, and I appreciate your coaching across everything I do, as always. Thanks, Peter. Take care, Dad. See you next time for our continuation of Exponential Wisdom.